Listener Production. Ukraine wants you to join its fight against Russia. Yes, you. On Friday, the country's defence ministry put out a call on Facebook for non-Ukrainians with combat experience to head over to Ukraine and take up arms against Russia. And according to Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukraine president, people are doing that. Ukraine has started welcoming foreign volunteers who are coming to our country. The first of 16,000 are coming to defend the liberty and life of us and of everyone. I'm sure it will be successful. The advice from our foreign minister, Maurice Payne, though, is pretty clear. Do not travel. On this episode of The Briefing, foreign fighters and the Ukraine conflict. The globalisation of armed conflicts. This is maybe the first that we'll see of that sort of mass mobilisation of individuals because the internet, forums and logistics have all become easier to get emotionally involved in foreign conflicts. That's coming up a little later in the show, but first, today's headlines as always. This is The Briefing. It is Monday the 7th of March. Starting today with the latest on Shane Warne and his body is expected to arrive home from Thailand tomorrow. This was after it was taken to a hospital on the Thai mainland for a post-mortem that happened yesterday afternoon. According to his friends, Warren had complained of tightness in his chest since he was in Australia. But to be diligent in completing our case, we must do this autopsy to find the facts. That's the local police chief, Yuthana Sirasumbat. Uh, that's a translation from the ABC. Thai officials believe there was no foul play involved and that the cause of death was likely a massive heart attack. And it's understood that Warren had just finished a crash liquid diet. He did go on these ridiculous sort of diets where he would, and he was just finished one where he basically, you know, only ate fluids for 14 days. Yeah, that was his manager, James Erskine, on nine there. Um, Warren will be given a state funeral. It's going to be held at the MCG. And of course, tributes have been pouring in over the last few days for him from people all over the world, not just in cricket. Um, there was Elton John paying tribute, Mick Jagger. Ed Sheeran, of course, Liz Hurley, who Shane Warne was engaged to for a period there, also paid tribute to her former fiancé. She called him her beloved Lionheart. Yeah, devastating, especially for his three kids. I guess the messages to come out of this are, you know, men should check their hearts. Heart disease is the biggest killer of men by mm. far. It's double the next closest cause of death. One of those is lung cancer, by the way, which he was also at risk of from smoking. It's also, I guess, a bit of a wake-up call on these diets as well, fluid-only diets that put increased pressure on your heart. But thankfully, there's so much more to learn from his life than his death. Um, what an amazing legend. Just incredible to hear all the stories coming out over the last few days. Yeah, I must say, I heard about um, Shane's death on Saturday when my sister woke me up with a text at 6.30 in the morning. This is a person who I guarantee you has never watched a cricket game in her life. <laughs> That's just testament to how much he transcended cricket. Totally. You know, and really was just kind of loved by everyone, whether they followed the sport or they didn't. And angry residents on the New South Wales North Coast say that they are still waiting for government help with 50,000 people still without power or food or proper telecommunications. This is a week after flooding began, Tom. Yeah, there's so much anger on the Northern Rivers right now. Over the weekend, locals got a chance to, I guess, um, direct that straight to the Premier as he made a trip around northern New South Wales. 
Um, this is what he faced when he got to Korokai on Saturday. It could have been here, right, four days ago, landing here, putting some sort of process in place so that everybody was like, oh, OK, we feel safe. Yeah, Perite's response to that local resident was this. There's anger and that anger, um, you know, just inspires us to make this good. Yeah, he's admitted that the response wasn't good enough, that it left locals stranded and desperate, and he's announced a review. I've just been seeing so many people blowing up about this online over the weekend, saying, you've left us alone, we've had to fend for ourselves, it's teams of local volunteers that have helped each other out, and the response has just been dismal and way too slow. Mm. Well, look, 900 defence personnel are now on the ground currently helping with the clean-up. That is a massive ramp-up from a few days ago, but I guess the criticism is that they've arrived just a little bit too late, perhaps. In Queensland, wild weather has continued pushing the flood death toll, sadly, to 12. This was after a man's body was found in his car. He was swept off a flooded crossing in the South Burnett region late yesterday. Yeah, 11,000 homes without power in that area yesterday. And then hail fell um, up to nine centimetres big. So still crazy weather there um, in southeast Queensland. Um, and there's more rain coming on the New South Wales coast, basically between Coffs Harbour and Shoalhaven on the south coast. There's up to 250 mils expected today and tomorrow. We are looking, unfortunately, for a few more days of wet, stormy flood-producing weather across New South Wales. But we we can see um, some clearance later on in the week, so hopefully just a few more days. Yeah, a few more days. I think that's the last thing the residents of of those places want right now is more rain. That was Jane Golding from the Bureau of Meteorology there. There are also flood warnings in place uh, for parts of Sydney's northwest and southwest. There's already been some major floodings at North Richmond and along the Hawkesbury and Lower Nepean rivers as well. Too much rain. Way too much. So when is it going to end? Well, the forecast is saying it should be clearing up by Wednesday. Oh, mate, fingers, toes, butt cheeks. That sun. I think people will be out um, worshipping that sun when it finally arrives. Yes, ma'am. To Ukraine now and the United Nations has confirmed that at least 364 civilians have died in the country since the start of the war, although the real number is believed to be a lot higher than that. Yeah, I mean, if it's that many, I think people will be thankful. Um, The shelling that we've seen of apartment blocks makes you think there could be a lot more. So the fighting's into its 10th day now. Um, The regional airport in central Ukraine has been completely destroyed by Russian rockets sparking renewed and desperate calls for a no-fly zone. If you don't impose no-fly zones, if you don't give us planes at least so that we can defend ourselves, then we can make only one conclusion. You also want us to be slowly killed. So that's Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukraine president, really ramping up the pressure on the West to bring in that no-fly zone, which so far they've refused to do. But in terms of giving Ukraine planes, there might be some change coming there. The US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, says they're considering sending fighter jets from Poland. We're looking actively now at the question of uh, airplanes that Poland may provide uh, to Ukraine and looking at uh, how we might be able to backfill should Poland decide to um, supply those planes. Yeah, so the Russian president, just speaking of that no-fly zone before, Vladimir Putin has warned that if the West was to implement any kind of no-fly zone over Ukraine, that that would be considered a hostile act of war, so a real escalation there. 
um, should they implement that no-fly zone, which is partly why that they've been holding off, despite, as we heard, Vladimir Zelensky really effectively begging them to. Meanwhile, the evacuation of 200,000 civilians from the besieged port of Mariupol um, has been stopped for the second day in a row. They were um, meant to cease fighting in that area so those civilians could get out, but um, they've continued to shell that corridor, which means no one's been able to get out safely. I mean, in terms of um, Vladimir Putin saying that's an act of war, enforcing a no-fly zone, he's also said that about the sanctions already. So he's just ramping up the rhetoric on every front. It's interesting to watch the Western forces try and sort of walk a fine line on on Mm. how far they go here, you know, saying that a no-fly zone is going too far, but sending the, the planes to start a fight in the air is not too far. I think as far as Putin's concerned, it's all a step too far and he's saying that it's all an act of war, an act of aggression. So I don't know how long the West can keep watching these civilians getting killed before it changes its tact. It's going to get harder and harder to, I guess, try and walk this fine line. And to Australian news, the Prime Minister is set to announce a military base on the East Coast for our new AUKUS nuclear submarines. He's going to reveal the plan in a national security speech uh, that he's going to deliver today. So Brisbane, Newcastle or Port Kembla on the south coast are the most likely locations for the new base. We've entered into the AUKUS arrangement to acquire the nuclear capability, nuclear sub-capability. It allows uh, potentially a vertical launch system or some uh, use of missiles, which would speak to a very strong deterrence message. So that's the Defence Minister Peter Dutton on the ABC there. This is pretty significant um, because... The facility, well, the new facility, if it's to be built, it'll be the first major defence base built in Australia since the Robertson Barracks in Darwin in the 1990s. Yeah, they're expected to spend $10 billion too. I will say, though, those nuclear subs aren't expected till 2040. Mm, the numbers do not add up there, Tom. Maybe the Prime Minister will enlighten us in the speech that he'll give us later today. Yeah, well, Dutton hinted yesterday that they might be able to acquire the subs sooner than 2040, which might, you know, offer that deterrent a little earlier. I expect that announcement. If it doesn't come today, we'll come before the election. Yeah, we should probably expect the uh, Prime Minister to warn that the situation in Ukraine, the strategic and political and economic and social implications will uh, will inevitably stretch to the Indo-Pacific. That's the big theme of, of today's speech. And Mike Cannon-Brooks has walked away from the AGL deal. Yeah, he posted on Twitter just a couple of hours ago a meme of a man standing in the rain, forlorn, sad, looks like it's mm. not going to happen. So he and the uh, Canadian investment firm Brookfield, they did make a second bid of more than $8 billion for AGL, which was about 10% mm. more Then his first bid, now AGL's board, met to consider the offer yesterday, but alas, unanimously rejected it. Yeah, so in his Twitter message, he said he's putting his pen down with great sadness and that the board are proceeding with their demerger path, which is a terrible outcome for shareholders, taxpayers, customers, Australia and the planet. Mm, just a little refresher as well. Um, Mike Cannon-Brooks, he, be- he wanted to, you know, buy AGL essentially to exit it from coal earlier than what it had initially planned. Um, so the plan was to uh, have it be carbon neutral by 2035. All right, coming up, uh, fighters heading to Ukraine, uh, in the case of Australians, against the advice of our government. Thank you.
I have no connection to Ukraine. I'm not Ukrainian, but I'm human. So I feel like it, it's just the right thing to do. That's a Canadian man called Anthony Walker who says he's answering the call for foreign fighters to join the battle against Russia. He's speaking on CBC. My wife was a mess. Uh, my dad was a mess. So, like, you know, no one's a fan of it, but everyone, everyone understands. Yeah, not surprised there that his family and friends don't want him heading over into a war zone. The wife's not into it. No, and I can completely understand that. Also not into it, our government. Our foreign Mm. minister was out last week telling Australians, if you have any intention to go to Ukraine, do not do it. Interesting that that was a slightly different position from the UK foreign minister who said this. And absolutely, if people want to support that struggle, I would support them in doing that. Yeah, that was a strange message to hear. Just go for it, basically. So in this episode, we're going to find out how many people are going, what kinds of people are taking up the call, and why is our government so dead against it? Dr Sarah Mega is a lecturer in international relations at the University of Melbourne. She's spoken to a number of foreign fighters in Ukraine. She joins us now. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. What did you think when you saw Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukraine president, calling for foreign fighters to come and join the war? Honestly, it was a little bit surprising, but not totally, because the Ukraine has a history of recruiting foreign fighters for their armed conflict. The conflict in Donbass has been going on for eight years. But that open call from a sitting president was quite unprecedented in international relations. What does that tell us? Does it say that he just doesn't have enough people on the ground to fight Russia? He needs more? Is it as simple as that? don't think it is as simple as that because Ukraine has a conscript army. Um, they've got in their constitution the ability to recruit every uh, man and woman in Ukraine to fight. So I think it was both symbolic, a message to the West about their desperation for support and an appeal, I guess, to the public to put more pressure on Western governments to support Ukraine. But of course, when you're under siege like this, any help that you can get, they'll take. Mm. It's going a little bit further than just symbolism, though. The um, uh, president there said that there's been 16,000, well, the first of 16,000 foreign fighters have started arriving in Ukraine. It's pretty hard to know exactly who they are and where they're coming from. Do we know who these people are? And can you give us a sort of definitive figure? The Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been asking for applications through their embassies all over the world. I do know that there have been some online chat forums established for people intending to go. And from monitoring those, I can tell you that, yes, it is people from all over the world, but there are a lot of Americans, Brits, Canadians, a handful of Australians, a number of people from across Western Europe, But also there seems to be a lot of Brazilians and South Americans that are interested in going to fight. So it will really be a global phenomenon. So are you thinking it's hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands? What's your estimate? I imagine they have gotten tens of thousands of inquiries. But the distinction between, you know, the inquiries they receive, the intention of some people to want to go versus actually crossing that border from Poland into Ukraine, I think there's going to be a deep drop off. In the end, we might see, yeah, some thousands go, but it'll be in waves. What kinds of people are interested in doing this? Is it mostly ex-military people or are there ideological motivations? 
who's attracted to go? In the official government appeal, they did say you must have military training. You must come with some sort of service background. But that's not the only way that people are going to be going. I know that there's a volunteer battalion called the Georgian Legion that has also been actively recruiting. They've been recruiting foreigners to the conflict over the last eight years. And they have said, you don't need any combat experience. We'll train you on the ground. Mm. Regardless, from the chats that I've seen online, um, it does seem like almost everyone has some sort of service background. And some of them have, in the words of one guy, he says, this is not my first rodeo. (laughs) So they've done this sort of volunteering in foreign conflicts before. What will they be faced with when they get on the ground in Ukraine? They're going to be faced with completely decimated country. I think we've all seen the images coming out. The cities are under bombardment, civilian targeting. They're going to see a total lack of infrastructure. So some of these guys are talking about what sort of things do I need? And they're talking logistically like you need a camelback, you need something to carry water in because Mm. even before the war, water was not drinkable in Ukraine. So it's going to be intensely difficult living situations and then heavy fire, like they're going to be thrown into the thick of it. So what did you think when the UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said she backed anyone from Britain to go because it was a very different response from our foreign minister? Well, each country has different laws about whether or not it's okay for their citizens to fight in foreign armed conflicts. I wasn't tremendously surprised by the British response. I am a little bit surprised by ours because very technically in Australia, it's not illegal to fight for a government in a foreign conflict. But this one really challenges uh, the intention of, of Australia's law. And I think that's why our foreign ministry has been discouraging people from going. Yeah, well, one of the things that the foreign minister said was that it was illegal not so much to fight in a government army, I guess, but to join militia groups in a foreign conflict. Can you explain the the difference and, and what our law says in terms of that? They made this distinction on the basis of the fact that we've got so many dual citizens in Australia and people who had wanted to go and fight, for example, in the former Yugoslav on behalf of their countries. So they made this distinction, like if you're fighting for government armed forces in a foreign conflict, then it's okay. But where it gets murky in Australia is they say, you know, for or on behalf of a government. Now in the Ukraine, a lot of the battalions prior to 2016, were what were called volunteer battalions. And I think we're going to see the reorganization, right? We already have it under what they're calling the territorial defense groups. These are only loosely associated with the command structure of the armed forces of Ukraine. So it's just going to be really murky waters legally for the Australian government to figure out, depending on where some of these men might land. Yeah, it's hard to understand how this all works. I mean, it's it's simple when you imagine someone going to join someone like the Islamic State, but then we're in a situation now where we've openly condemned the Russians, we're openly backing the Ukrainians. Our laws, as you've said, allow people to fight for an official foreign force. So why have the government taken this position? Is it just a concern for the safety of those individuals or is there more to it? I think it's 
because of the the murkiness of this particular situation, it would be a real test case, I think, legally for how Australia deals with what I've been calling in my research the globalization of armed conflicts. And I think this is maybe the first that we'll see in coming years and decades of that sort of mass mobilization of individuals because the internet forums and logistics have all become easier to get emotionally involved in foreign conflicts. So I think for the Australian government, right, they've got their eye on not just what's happening here, but what's the precedent being set for the future. What's the danger here? What do we need to be careful of? What can go wrong? We've got two sort of dangerous scenarios on our hands. We've got, on the one hand, war adventurers. So there's some of these men on the forums bragging about their previous volunteer experience openly calling themselves mercenaries, recognizing that they just like to go to foreign places and wield lethal violence. And that's just a sort of dangerous desire uh, of anyone to have, I guess. But the other issue we've got is the way in which for eight years, this conflict has been a sort of ideological front line for far left and far right groups. In Ukraine, they do have quite a strong, it's a very small, but a strong far right-wing contingent. They've been very active in the conflict in Donbass. And I think these groups are going to feel even more empowered or justified in their ideological extremism because of the conflict and will be actively recruiting foreign fighters with similar ideological views. Is it just extreme nationalism in defense of Ukraine? And if so, how is that different from Zelensky, who's also digging in? Some of these groups have openly Nazi symbols as part of their insignia. They have Nazi flags up around their barracks. They hate homosexuals. They hate Jews. They hate people of color. It's beyond just nationalism and what I would call extreme right ideology. Race-based ideology. So my fear is Nationalism, is that what you say? Not solely race-based, like race is is a key element, but I think misogyny also plays a really strong role in those far-right groups. Mm. And xenophobia, so even if you're the same colour, right, just foreigners altogether are not really welcome. And so is the danger then that if a fighter from Australia goes there and hooks up with these particular groups that they could bring that ideology or that training back to Australia? Like, What is the danger for our country and the people in it? So for those of us who study terrorism or violent extremism, there is the fear of further radicalization, especially in that very intense situation of hostilities. They'll feel under siege, they'll feel vindicated in their ideologies. It's not so much that I think we have a fear that they'll come back and launch some sort of lone wolf attack or even terrorist attack but that radicalization and combination of combat experience could you know lead to wanting to form armed groups in Australia and throw their sort of muscle around physically as well. Dr. Sarah Mega from the University of Melbourne who's done research on foreign fighters, it would be so messy if you go and get involved in this conflict, but as she explained, our laws allow you to if you join the Ukraine army. Mm. The other interesting thing that she said was this idea of 
Zelensky putting the call out there, maybe not necessarily anticipating tens of thousands of people to come, but using it as a PR opportunity to make people feel involved in the conflict and that they have a stake in it as well. It's not just about Ukraine. It's about the bigger issues of freedom and democracy and fighting against the big guns. And if you're into that, then come and join us. It's like rallying symbolic support. Tomorrow on The Briefing, it is International Women's Day and we are celebrating some very badass women from Australian history. That's what we're doing tomorrow. Listener.